Well, good morning. It is good to be together. Uh, I was thinking, actually, of how to, uh, how to finish the, uh, the intersection. I'm going to do all of my pastoral counseling visits at Gordito's. <laughs> Got all four corners covered. Well, um, you know, in the, in the last... In the last few years, uh, you've probably caught this on the news or in articles, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about the increased use of body cameras on police officers. More and more, they're trying, when they're trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened in an altercation between a police officer and a, and a citizen, um, they want to be able to rely on video evidence from the moment that is in question. And... Um, and it's you know been able it's been helpful in certain situations uh, to show kind of what actually happened. Granted, from a limited perspective, and I recognize it's a complicated issue. But part of what is motivating this conversation around body cameras is, is not just so that after the fact there's evidence of what happened, but actually uh, that it it might serve as a bit of a motivation to those who are both wearing them and to those who are being recorded. Um, that, that might actually affect their actions beforehand, right? Like that there's something that happens when you know you're being recorded uh, that affects how you act. You act differently. You say things, perhaps, differently than you might otherwise. Um, I, we would dream of a world where that wouldn't be necessary, right? Where people act with perfect integrity all the time and, uh, and say the things, regardless of the consequences, that are right and true, but... Sadly, we live in a fallen world, uh, and we know that because we watch our kids. Um, the, the body camera idea works with our kids as well, right? We, we witness them um, when they know that they are being watched, they act differently. Uh, and we know this because we watch them at times when they don't think they're being watched, <laughs> and we see how they act, right? We see how they do things um, that they might not otherwise do if they knew that they were being watched. Uh, this works in a positive way, too. Uh, Alistair got, he just had his birthday a couple of weeks ago, and he got this remote control car. And when, when he puts together a, a, a Lego thing or when he finds, kind of a, does something cool with a new toy, he wants to show me. He's so proud. And so he's like, Dad, look at this awesome thing. And he, like, zoomed the, the remote control car and then, slammed it to the left really quick with the remote, and it, it did the skid-out thing, and he just was beaming that he'd made his car skid. You know, just the highlight for a six-year-old. And what, what he says and what, what Amelia and, and, and Carter say when, they, when they're so excited to show something is, look it, right? Look it. Look at me, Dad. Look it. And it reminds me of this Peanuts cartoon, this old Peanuts cartoon that I saw years ago. Look it, Charlie Brown. Look it. Look at me jump rope. Look it. Look it. Look it. I'm looking, he responds. So there is, a, there is a theological term for this, actually, and it's called coram deo, which is a Latin phrase that means in the face of God. We live all of life, uh, not just in God's presence. I think sometimes when we say we live life in the presence of God, uh, sometimes we can think that that presence is actually kind of not so present, that it's sort of this faraway, overarching present, a God who's, who's watching over us. But this this Latin phrase, quorum Deo, uh, means in the face of God. And I, I love that because it, it, it helps me get away from this, this distant God and it brings the nearness of God near. Quorum Deo. 
um, David, uh, as he writes Psalm 139, we, we prayed some of this language earlier. David says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. And as you hear David write the psalm, write these words, it's hard to tell if God's nearness and presence is exciting good news to him or if it's a little bit fearful. He doesn't really tip his hand. And I think that's because, if we're honest about it, living life in the face of God, um, just, just with the illustration I used with our kids, it's, it's both something that can, can instill a little bit of, of holy awe and reverence in us and also give us great comfort. It's something that lends a, a seriousness and a weight to our lives and to our actions, but also gives us a great sense of, of freedom and hope and peace. And I think that it's just this combination of things uh, that Paul is trying to instill in Timothy as he gives him his final charge. We're, we've been walking through 2 Timothy. We've got um, just one or two weeks left, and we're here in the last chapter, chapter 4. And these are some of the last words that Paul wrote before his own execution. So beginning in chapter 4, if you want to read along, it'll be on the screen. If you want to look on your phone or in your Bibles. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. With great patience and with careful instruction. For the time will come... When people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And we trust and receive this this letter that Paul wrote to this young pastor. We receive it as a word for us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you help us to hear you speaking to us through it? Would you, Lord, correct, rebuke, and encourage each one here as we have need? That we would leave here a changed people by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So Paul's charge to Timothy. I want to start with uh, with verse 2, with the particular charge that he gives to Timothy. I had, a couple of weeks ago, I got to charge Matt as we ordained Matt. And uh, I'm not saying that I'm Paul and you're Timothy in any stretch of the imagination. But it was a joy to get to to get to give that charge. And so, you know, I, I got a, a taste maybe of what 
Paul is doing here, trying to, to set a, a course and a trajectory for the rest of Timothy's ministry. Paul's charge to Timothy is to preach the word. Um, and for someone who is a pastor, who does get to preach, it's a particularly poignant charge uh, and, and a, full of a one, wonderful guidelines for what good preaching should look like and should do in people's lives. First off, right, he's, he's to be prepared in season and out of season, to be prepared when it's convenient or when it's not convenient. And, and that, the, that Timothy's preaching should, should do these things. It should, it should have this impact in people's lives. It should correct them, instruct them. It should rebuke them. Uh, and it should also encourage them. And that is, that's a broad spectrum of things that a, a sermon can do. And, and I was reading this and thinking, man, how, how, can, how can one possibly do all of these things when you're preaching? And uh, it reminded me of just where we were last week, actually, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is describing what God's word does. And it's a very similar description that Paul gives about what God's word does in our lives, that God's word is, that God's word is God-breathed, and it's useful for these things, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you hear that similar language there? So I hear there is, is Paul saying, Timothy, if you're going to preach well and your preaching is going to do these things, it's got to be rooted in Scripture. <laughs> it's got to be rooted in God's Word. And then if it is, well, then your preaching is just going to do what God's Word is already doing in people's lives. It's going to be correcting them. It's going to be rebuking them when they need that, and it's going to be encouraging them when they need that. I don't know if you've uh, ever experienced that, either from uh, a passage in the Bible that you've been reading or from a sermon that you've heard, but experienced kind of both the rebuke and encouragement at the same time. Um, I think that, that often it's, it's dependent on kind of the place that we are in, either emotionally, spiritually, maybe even physically, like, that we hear God's word uh, differently depending on what it is that we need. And I think that's part of how God's word is actually alive, right? It's living and active, and it, and it, it meets us in our particular need. And sometimes that's a correcting word. Sometimes that's a rebuke that we need to hear. Other times it's, it's encouragement and it's hope. Uh, when I was in college, uh, which is kind of when I, I started helping to lead worship more regularly at our, our campus worship team, the campus pastor, we, we would gather with him for prayer before each service, and he would pray the same prayer every time he, he preached, every time he spoke. And that was that his preaching would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think that's something of, of what we find here in Paul's in, instruction to Timothy. It's also something that we find Jesus doing throughout his whole ministry, right? Comforting the afflicted, but also afflicting the comfortable. And I think that if we're honest, we are some combination, uh, we need some combination of all of these things at the same time. Right? We, we both need to be encouraged, but we also need to be rebuked and instructed and guided. And God's word is able to do this. And good preaching, based in God's word, hopefully, is able to do this as well. But not all of us are called to preach in the way that we think of preaching, right? Not all of you are called to be up front of people on a Sunday morning doing what I'm doing. Um, so how do, we make, how do we generalize this call? Uh, 
the Greek actually helps us here because the Greek word for, for preaching is not the way that we think of preaching in this very kind of Sunday morning up front to a bunch of people sense. Uh, it really is a, a more broadly just proclaiming, speaking uh, in a public way, speaking to others. In fact, even publishing is a way that, uh, that this word could be translated. Proclaim the gospel. So the call here to each Christian, to each one of us who follows Christ, is to proclaim publicly in some form or another the gospel message. Uh, and that is going to look different for each one of us. That's going to look different whether we're at work or at home, whether we're with our neighbors or our friends. But it's a good reminder that the gospel is something that's not only to be lived, and of course it is something that we live out, right? Uh, but it is also a message to be spoken, to be proclaimed. We've, we've been asking this question on our council. We've been asking it here in, in our church. Who, who are your five? Who, who are the five people that you sense God maybe has put in your life that, uh, that he's put there for you to, to proclaim the good news to them? Neighbors, coworkers, family members, who might those five people be that God's impressed on your heart Um, these are people that need the good news. These are people that need the good news to be proclaimed to them. Yes, they need it to be lived in front of them. They need to see it in action. They need to to taste it. Um, But they also need to hear it. I just want to remind you to continue to lift those people up in prayer, to continue to, uh, um, to prayerfully consider what opportunities there might be in front of you to to share the good news, to, to speak it out. So I, I want to look now at the, at the setting, at the context for the charge that Paul gives Timothy. And there are two competing realities that Paul highlights. Two competing visions for what is most true and most real. And the first vision is this. In the presence of God, this is verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead... And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Do you sense the weight there? Right? Do you sense the, the, the urgency, the importance, the seriousness of the task that Timothy's been given? This is a loaded opening. And this is that sense of, of coram deo, right? living life in the face of God. Uh, doing the work that Timothy's been called to do in the face of God. God who in Christ will judge the living and the dead. So there's, there's a weight here, uh, a seriousness that reminds us that what's at stake uh, is life and death. And I think sometimes uh, I know that I lose sight of that. And when I think sometimes about uh, sharing the gospel, my attitude tends, can tend to be um, I'm, I'm trying to get people to add church to their already busy lives that that's really what I'm, I'm after. And, and if that's the case, then I'm just going to be silent because people are busy and they don't need another thing in their life. They don't need one more affinity group to add to their full plate. But if what's at stake here is, is life and death, then, um, then I feel some of the weight and the, 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 the urgency about sharing the good news that Christ died out of love for the world. And offers freely to all who would receive it new life, life that starts now and goes on forever. 
But there is also here in this, in this charge, in this, in this setting of, uh, of life in the face of God, there is also a freedom and a grace and an ease that we can take comfort in. That the message that we share is not, is not our message. It's Christ's message. It's simply us bearing witness to Christ and to his kingdom. We're not coming up with the message. We don't have to, uh, we don't have to drum up arguments. We just get to, to bear witness to it. And the results for our sharing uh, are not ours to control. We, we entrust the results of our proclaiming the gospel to the work of the Spirit. And we can rest in that. There's freedom in that. Uh, it, it reminds me, I think, of the, the tension that, um, that Jesus highlights when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That tension of, of the, the, that there is a yoke and there is a burden for those of us who follow Christ, uh, but it's easy and light. And I think that is the sense that Paul is hoping to instill in Timothy and in each one of us for, for what it means to live life in the presence of God, in the face of God. Then there's, there's a second vision that Paul highlights, a second competing vision for what is most true. And, and the competing vision is this. Whatever suits you best, that's what's true. You get to decide. You get to pick the things that are, kind of make your life the most comfortable, and, and, and that whatever suits you, that's just fine. That's true. He writes this, that for the time is coming, the time will come, when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear great image that is. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and they'll turn aside to myths. Gathering around them a great number of teachers, a great number of people to say what their itching ears want to hear. That, that doesn't sound like our culture at all, does it? That's, uh, that's, just, that's just first century Palestine. That was something culturally unique to that time period. Um, no, that that's, seems like a pertinent description of, of much of our world. And if we're honest... So it's an apt description of the church when the church is at her worst, right? When we are the most petty and divisive, we can be just like that. Gathering around us people that we know are just going to agree with what we've already decided we believe. Rather than submitting ourselves to the truth. But what's beautiful about the church is that the church, I believe, at her best, can help be the antidote to this. Can help be uh, an experience that's counter to the way that so many in our world uh, do this. There's been a lot of talk of, um, you know, especially in this kind of politically charged season that we're in, of the echo chamber effect that can happen on social media, where the only people that you interact with are people that already agree uh, with all of the things that you believe already. And so you just, you know, you send something out there and everyone says, yeah, totally, we're right. And... Um, Rather than having anyone that might, uh, might challenge or push back and, and provoke you and, and, and push you more towards the truth. Well, I think the church here, the church everywhere, can be, can be an antidote to this. Um, we are gathered around Christ, centered around Christ. But we come as people with certainly different political views. We come as people with different worship style preferences. We come as people who, who learn and receive 
uh, information differently. Some of us are visual learners. Some of us are, are auditory learners. Um, we come as people from different socioeconomic levels, and we talk, and we get to hear from each other. And as we do that, uh, we have the possibility to do what, what, what Paul is describing to Timothy that his preaching can do. We have the possibility to rebuke and correct and encourage each other, even just in our conversations. That part of our proclaiming the gospel happens to each other in conversations over coffee, in small groups, in community groups. And I think this is one of the ways, one of the main ways, that we avoid uh, simply just gathering around ourselves people that are just going to tell us what we've already decided is true. So if we are, if we are living out our calling, well, let me back up. Paul is writing to Timothy about the primary vocation or one of the main vocations that Timothy has, to be a pastor, to be a preacher. And there is a, there's a part of this, as I've already said, that is a general call to all of us to be people who proclaim the good news in the world, to proclaim the good news to each other. Uh, but there's also a way that we can read this where uh, we need to take a good look at our vocations, at our callings, whatever those are. And in a room this size, that's a lot of different callings and vocations. And to say, what would happen if I lived my vocations coram Deo, in the face of God? What would happen if I looked at my significant relationships, at the things that I spend most of my day doing, and I heard that same setting, that same vision that Paul casts for Timothy, and I heard that as the setting in which I fulfill these vocations, I, I live out these vocations. It might sound something like this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Parent your children well, in season and out of season. Manage your employees with great patience and careful instruction. Do your work to its fullest, whatever that work may be. Do it to the glory of God. Love your spouse. Remain faithful and pure in singleness and in marriage. Serve your neighbor. Live your whole life, Quorum Deo, in the face of God. And if you want to know what the face of God looks like, you look to Jesus. And that's why we come every week to this table, because we forget. We're forgetful, forgetful people, and we need reminding. We need uh, to be reminded of what God looks like, of who God is, of what his characteristics are. So we come today to this table, and we come with these vocations. We come with our work and our relationships and all of that stuff in our lives, all of our lives, we come and we bring to God, to the presence of God that we experience in the bread and in the cup. And we receive forgiveness. And we see, receive strength for the work that we're called to do. So before we come, before we take communion together, I want to just leave a few moments of silence um, 
think about the different vocations that you have, the different callings that you have. Think about what might it mean for you to recognize and to live those callings out um, in the face of God. Think about who in your life uh, you might need to proclaim the gospel to. And then after a couple of minutes, I'll call us to the table here.